Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Gavin O'Gorman, who I might add. Not related. <laughs> <laughs> Despite their certain surnames are not related. In this week, this week's podcast, we'll be talking about Tortoiseshell, a newly discovered espionage group that's been hitting targets in the Middle East. Why Facebook has suspended tens of thousands of third-party apps how patients had to be moved from a Wyoming hospital after a ransomware attack, and how Apple's iOS 13 was released earlier this week with a known vulnerability. But first, if you're the owner of a web forum or indeed a frequent visitor of such forums, you may be interested to hear that a critical new zero-day vulnerability has been discovered in vBulletin, which is one of the most popular pieces of software used to power forums. So details on this vulnerability, along with a proof of concept exploit code, were released on Tuesday of this week by an anonymous hacker who sent them both to the full disclosure mailing list. Aside from the fact that it's a zero day and it hasn't been patched yet, which means it hasn't been patched yet, what makes this vulnerability so dangerous is that it's remotely exploitable and it doesn't require authentication on the part of the attacker. So in short, in the wrong hands, it could do an awful lot of damage. The vulnerability appears to affect all versions of vBulletin from version 5 onwards up to the latest version, which is 5.5.4, I believe. It occurs in the way an internal widget file accepts configuration via the URL parameters and then parses them on the server without proper safety checks, which means an attacker can inject commands and thus remotely execute code on the system. Now, vBulletin's developers are reportedly aware of this vulnerability and are working to develop a patch and are hoping to deploy it before attackers begin exploiting the flaw in the wild. However, they're going to be up against the clock because already there's been some serious interest in this exploit. Um, Apparently, there's already scripts being released that can allow people to scan the web in order to find websites using this vulnerability, uh, using vulnerable versions of the bulletin. Okay, so let's move on to our next item because last week Symantec released its latest piece of research which was about a previously unknown group of cyber attackers known as Tortoiseshell. Unfortunately for us, we have Gavin who was the principal researcher on this project here in the studio today and he's going to tell us all about it. So Gavin, let's start at the start. Um, Who or what is Tortoiseshell? Yeah, sure. So... We started looking into into this group of activity or a set of activity around, uh, I think it's a month ago when we started. And um, basically we got a tip off from a third party that they had seen some, some malware on a network and they shared some details about that malware. So they, they sent us some uh, hashes of the files. And when I went looking in semantic uh, telemetry, which basically is all the data we get back from, from customer computers, I went looking in that telemetry for those particular um, IOCs or indicators of compromise that have been shared and found that we had seen them on actually a very large number of machines on in two organizations in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it was actually around 450 computers. I initially thought it was a, uh, a false positive given the, the large number of machines. But when I looked into it a bit more, we could see that the commands, the malware was being run on the machines in a particular way, such that we could see it was very clearly malware and it was uploading uh, stolen information about the local machines to a a command and control server. So like I said, that that number of machines is is pretty unusual to encounter. 
and we started looking into it very uh, very quickly and with uh, I suppose kind of high priority because if that number of machines has been compromised and given the nature of attacks we've seen against organizations in Saudi Arabia in the past such as the Shamoon attacks uh, we would be quite sensitive about keeping an eye on that type of thing and, and responding to it very quickly. So after that initial find of those 450 or so machines in two organizations, we start looking at the machines to see what other malware are on those uh, computers. And with such a large number of machines, it's a little bit difficult. And what the, the general process is, we'll actually go back and try and find the very first machines that were compromised. Look at those machines, try and figure out how did the attackers get in. And in this case, we found quite a number of tools had been deployed onto the uh, attacker machines. Sorry, the victim machines. And so from the set of tools that we identified on those victim machines, we could then search again across our customer telemetry base and find all of the other additional uh, victims where these additional malware uh, uh, samples had been found. And so basically we started to spread out and find more and more tools and expand, find more victims and so on, the usual process for our investigations. And it got to a point where we were pretty happy that we'd found all the tools that the group used. And we'd actually gone back in time to around, uh, I think it was July of last year. Yeah, July of 2018 was the first activity we saw for this particular attacker. Again, in Saudi Arabian uh, organizations, but very much a small number of machines. Nowhere near what we saw in um, March and April of this year with those two organizations and the um, 200 or 450 machines. So I suppose that was kind of a general uh, investigation. Other bits and pieces that popped up along the way that were quite interesting were uh, we couldn't find a, a definitive, consistent vector for how they were getting into the victim organizations. In one organization, we saw that a web shell had been deployed uh, eight minutes before malware was created on the victim machine. And so that was a pretty good indication that at least in that one organization, they had very likely gotten in through some sort of compromise against a web server, deployed the web shell, and then used the web shell to deploy their malware and then begin spreading within the network. So that was a good a good kind of indicator for that organization, but we didn't see that replicated in the other organizations. So obviously they have a number of other probable techniques for getting into uh, organizations. Okay. And... Um... You mentioned there was a few victims in Saudi Arabia. Were all the victims in Saudi Arabia? And also, like, what kinds of organizations were these, these guys going after? Yeah, so most of the victims were in Saudi Arabia. Um, I believe that something in the order of 70 or 80% of the victims were in Saudi Arabia. And there were a few outside. Um, those outside victims, it's quite possible that they were actually... Uh, offices of companies that are Saudi Arabian, basically based outside uh, Saudi Arabia. The nature of the victims in Saudi Arabia for the um, majority of the victims was basically large IT providers. So the type of companies that might provide support for a large number of companies in the region from simple things like possibly managing your, your network security to helping you deploy uh, windows and applications and like that across your, your network. So it's it's a pretty interesting target for an attacker because by compromising an IT provider like that, you are then in a position to actually 
make your way into all of those customer networks that the IT provider uh, services. And this, I suppose, the kind of referred to as supply chain attacks. This this approach is, you know, it's a nice way to get, I suppose, bang for your buck effectively that you've compromised one organization and as a result, you get access to many, many others. Uh, so that was generally the nature of the victims, yeah, that we saw. And one really interesting detail about these attacks was, and you mentioned it at the start, is that they were infecting, in some cases, I think hundreds of machines in each organization. And that's really unusual for this type of targeted attack. Usually you only see a handful of machines. What do you think they were doing or why did you think they needed to compromise so many computers? Yeah, it was an odd one, all right. I mean, you know, for this type of attack, usually these attackers are quite discreet. You know, they don't want to draw attention to themselves. They want to maintain access to these uh, victims. And so, you know, you don't do that by spreading to a very large number of machines because obviously that increases the chance chances of you being detected. So it's unusual. Uh, the only times where we would really see that are in the very destructive attacks where obviously they want to spread onto as many machines as possible, deploy some sort of wiper or tool that will uh, disable the machine in some way. Uh, and so that was why we initially were so concerned when, when we first saw this. But in this particular case, it seemed that they were simply spreading to all of these machines purely to retrieve data about those local machines. So once they spread onto a machine, they would retrieve quite a large amount of fairly generic information, such as the computer name, its IP address, uh, configured routes, uh, software installed, things like that. So it seemed like they were basically looking for a large number of details about machines, presumably to then go through that information and identify them in machines that were of interest to them. So maybe they were looking for machines that had particular routes set up, perhaps for uh, connecting into specific other customers of those IT providers, or they were looking for machines which were running software. Maybe there was a particular tool that would be used to administer machines in um customers of the IT providers. So so that was our, our general, um, I suppose, assumption as to what they were actually trying to, to, to find or what their reasoning was behind spreading to all of those uh, separate machines. Okay. And um, are these um, attacks still ongoing? So we saw them active as of the end of August. And I think there was actually, there was a blog quite recently there from... Um, Cisco Talos, where they described similar behavior, uh, or they identified malware that we associate with the tortoise shell group. They identified it being used in attacks against what they claim is um, uh, U.S. military veterans. So that that research, I haven't looked into into, into it in too much detail, but it does seem uh, correct. And if that is the case, then, you know, certainly those guys are still active and, and performing those attacks as well. All right. OK. And any idea of uh, who's behind Tortoiseshell, where they are, who they are? I guess it's a tricky one, given the nature of the, the region. Uh, I mean, I think Saudi Arabia and the types of companies that were targeted, there could be a number of actors in the region who would be interested in them. Um, I guess, you know, one of the names that's always going to pop up in that uh, with an interest in Saudi Arabia is Iran. Uh, but having said that, we don't have any particular evidence to point to any any given country as being uh, responsible. 
Okay. All right. Thanks, Gavin. Now from Gavin O'Gorman to Bridget O'Gorman, um, <laughs> stories uh, related to Facebook uh, are something we've kind of we've covered fairly frequently um, last year. And it looks like uh, that things are unlikely to change now. Isn't that right? Yeah. So it seems to probably be reporting um, on a lot of Facebook related stories again um, as we go back into the podcast, as they continue to, I suppose, try and rehabilitate themselves um, following the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which broke more than a year and a half ago now, so quite a long time ago, but the repercussions of it do still continue to reverberate um, for the company and I suppose for, you know, for everyone really. Um, and in the latest developments from Facebook, the company announced just late last week that it had actually suspended what it said were tens of thousands of apps from around 400 developers. And it said this was basically the latest step in it's kind of what it's called as app developer investigation, which has been ongoing since March 2018, when the Cambridge Analytica um, reports first broke. And in this announcement about this development, Facebook said they were keen to stress that, you know, this move didn't mean that tens of thousands of apps were actually posing a threat to users of the platform or to their data. Um, they just kind of, I suppose, are saying that they suspended this number of apps out of kind of an abundance of caution, really. And uh, some of these apps that were suspended weren't actually live or they were simply in the testing phase and so may never have actually been rolled out on the platform. And in other case, but cases, Facebook said that when they received no response from developers, when they reached out to them to ask for further information about the apps, they then decided to suspend them. Okay, so it means that some of them could be reinstated if the Yes, yeah, so some uh, of them could potentially be reinstated okay. or potentially may have been sort of benign, but just not, um, you know, Facebook just didn't get that information from them, basically. Um, and Facebook had said that, you know, it basically it picked out these apps, I guess, apps that it wanted to look at further based on, I suppose, you know, they looked at how many users they had, how much data they access to, and then they said other signals as well that, they could have the potential to abuse Facebook's policies. And as well as suspending, you know, the large number of apps, as we said, um, you know, that could potentially be reversed or that they also did ban some apps completely. And apps that were banned, you know, included those that were sort of blatantly breaking Facebook's policies, those that inappropriately shared data that was obtained from Facebook, or those that made data publicly available um, without protecting people's identities. So those apps were just not, they weren't suspended, they were just banned outright. Okay. And so what's going to happen to the developers of um, these um, the, the banned apps, I guess? Well, in some cases, Facebook has did also outline this um, announcement that they have taken legal action in some cases against some of the companies and some of the developers that violated their policies or those that refused to cooperate with their investigations. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens um, in those court cases. And they also said, you know, they've set up kind of new rules now that do limit the amount of data that app developers can access um, about Facebook users. And they've also come into a new agreement with the FTC in the States. So that will require developers then to sort of annually get certified that they're complying with Facebook policies. And Facebook said as well that, you know, they're not kind of going to allow just any kind of apps for developers to have access to data on Facebook users now. So they, they will only allow it if it's kind of going to improve the experience of people using Facebook. So the likes of things like personality quizzes and that sort of thing, which were used to be so popular on Facebook and also led to the, a lot of the issues with the Cambridge Analytica um, scandal, things like that will probably no longer be allowed on the app. So, I mean, it seems like pretty positive moves really on the half of Facebook. And I suppose 
as we move ever closer to the 2020 elections next year in the US, you know, I suppose Facebook kind of has to make moves like this because there's no doubt that it's probably going to come under quite a lot of scrutiny um, after obviously everything we've learned since 2016, as with other um, social media platforms as well. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see how they all kind of handle that, I suppose. Yeah, I expect it'll probably be um, a good few more announcements uh, as we get near the election because yeah, I'd, I'd say so. they and all the other social media platforms will be I want to kind of tighten up their, their ship before uh, the election okay. now moving on to ransomware um, it's actually been uh, a big issue in the healthcare sector of late and then there was another incident this week which just shows the sheer kind of amount of disruption that a ransomware can attack, attack can cause yeah absolutely I mean ransomware has been a big issue in the healthcare sector really for a long time, but um, especially recently as well. And just last week, a ransomware attack hit a hospital in Wyoming. Um, and it led to some patients having to be transferred as far as 125 miles um, in order to receive treatment at a different hospital. So it was a 90-bed hospital called the Campbell County Memorial Hospital, which is based in Gillette in Wyoming. And it found on Friday morning that it had been hit with this ransomware attack. Um, so the hospital um, said that the attack impacted all of its computer systems and that it was forced to cancel um, several surgeries and also they were no longer able to admit any new, ma- any new patients to the hospital. They were also forced to turn away any outpatients who showed up for things like radiology treatments or that kind of thing. Um, and the attack seems to have persisted, causing this disruption over the weekend because as of Tuesday morning, um, according to the hospital's own website, those kind of outpatient appointments were still unavailable. And it said that people who presented to the emergency department would be assessed there, but then would probably have to be transferred to another hospital to actually, I suppose, be admitted or receive any treatment. And so there's actually no information yet on how many patients may have had to have been transferred or redirected as a result of this attack that hasn't come out yet or if it's kind of caused any bad repercussions for people. Um, So Wyoming's Homeland Security Office said that it's coordinating with other law enforcement officials and that it's investigating the attack. However, we don't know yet when the hospital believes it will get back to kind of full service. And we also don't know yet what kind of ransomware was used or whether the ransom has actually been paid either that hasn't been revealed yet by the hospital. And I suppose given we don't know the type of ransomware used, we can say for sure that this was a targeted ransomware attack, but that does seem likely as healthcare institutions you know, they're among the primary targets of criminals behind targeted ransomware. You know, there's many factors that kind of influence that, the sort of sensitive data that they have, the fact that downtime, as we can see in this attack, you know, causes major impacts on hospitals. And also the fact that obviously they can't really keep these kind of incidents secret because of their public facing nature. Obviously, if they can't carry out procedures or can't admit people, it's going to, you know, come out in the public. And I suppose all these factors do in kind of increase the likelihood that health institutions may be perhaps more willing to pay a ransom than other sectors where it's easier to kind of cope with these things or to have downtime for a certain amount of time. And even while we were on hiatus over the summer, we did, we weren't just on holidays, sadly, <laughs> but we did publish a white paper about targeted ransomware and it found that in 2018, a quarter of the organisations that were hit by SAMSAM, which is one of the biggest um, targeted ransomware threat groups, were health organisations. So that does just demonstrate that it is a sector that's at like seriously high risk from these types of attacks. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of risk factor there that, that you, you mentioned a lot, several of them, but like also healthcare organizations, they often don't have the biggest IT budgets in the world, Yeah. Um, which means uh, they're, they're another you know, source of weakness there. Now, finally, uh, I think we've time to talk about one more thing, because um, this week, uh, iOS 13, which was the latest version of Apple's mobile operating system, was released and apparently was released with a known vulnerability. Yeah, so it was released with um, what was a lock screen bypass, basically, that then could allow people to potentially access your contacts or all the contact information that's on your iPhone. Uh, so this was discovered by a security researcher and he reported it to Apple back in July. But um, apparently the iPhones were in the beta version, obviously, because it wasn't live then. But um, the iPhones with iOS 13 have been shipped, shipped excuse me, shipped uh, with this uh, exploit apparently still um, exploitable on yeah. the phones. I, I think he said he was surprised to see it in the final version. Um, but Apple quickly came out and said that it was going to be fixed in version 13.1, uh, which was actually released yesterday and did come out yesterday, I know, because I just uh, downloaded it onto my phone this morning. So it all begs the question of why did they release um uh, a new version of the operating system with a, a known vulnerability. Yeah. So I was trying to think about it earlier on that this week, and I'm wondering, like, was it already installed on loads of new iPhones? So they kind of had to have an official release of it because Maybe, they couldn't yeah. take them out of the boxes and That's patch it, them. Yeah, I don't they know. were just all in the boxes. Unless, yeah. yeah, if that was the case, then they suppose they, they weren't going to release probably yeah. or delay the release of the iPhone because that was... Yeah. lead to a lot of upset people I'm sure yeah. so perhaps it, but at least if it's been fixed now I suppose they did act fairly swiftly on it but it is quite unusual especially considering yeah. he reported it as far back as July Yeah, I guess yeah. Well, it is an exploit where you have to have physical access to the phones so mm. you know I suppose it's limited in its exploitability I suppose yes. in ways yeah. but it yeah. still isn't a great look really I guess for them to release when they knew that there was an issue there. I think it was only about like two days later that the updated version came out. So there wasn't that much time for, first yeah. of all, for people to install <laughs> iOS 13, uh, let alone uh, have that vulnerability exploited by somebody getting their hands on their phone. iOS 13, I'm lucky for some. I'm lucky for some indeed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's about all we have time for this week. Um, if you've been enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all of the future action. You can also follow us on Twitter at threat intel or uh, medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel if you'd like to read our latest research including uh, gavin's research on um, tortoiseshell that we were talking about earlier check out our blog which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence we'll be back again next week when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. until then thank you and goodbye